This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. Hey, this is Rondé Barber. You're listening to Ira, I think that's his name, and Clark on the iTest for Two. haven't guessed by now this is our christmas edition of the i test for two podcast i'm clark judge i'm ira the sage kaufman (laughs) and we're hall of fame voters and we're joined today not only by bing crosby but by our hall of fame producer ian glendon but that's not all no it isn't because this is christmas week in a time where friends and family get together i mean usually get together maybe not this year but they usually get together we're going to be joined by our longtime friend, that'd be historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal, and a good friend of mine from covering the Chargers and the 49ers, that would be linebacker Gary Plummer, to talk about the tragic passing of Hall of Fame linebacker Kevin Green, who died Monday at the age of 58. But first, guys, because I mentioned this is our Christmas edition, and I don't want to keep Bing waiting that long, I want to give you, Ira, Ian, the two of you, a chance to give somebody a gift. Um, Secret Santa, uh, you know, Yankee Swap, I don't care what you call it. You can give somebody a gift today, and it doesn't have to be a person. It can be a team. It can be a coach. It can be a player. I don't care what you want to do. Just give someone a gift. Um, so, Ira, I guess I'll start with you. You want to give somebody or something deserving to somebody in today's NFL? I have a very appropriate Christmas gift, Mr. Judge. And this is going to Mr. Michael Tomlin, address Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a beautifully gift-wrapped snow shovel to dig out of this avalanche that the Steelers are in. (laughs) Gentlemen, this is one of the great collapses we've seen late in the regular season. Uh, They are going to make the playoffs, but that's about as far as I'm going to go. They look like they can't beat the Detroit Lions right now, gentlemen. Are, are these the 64 Phillies waiting to happen? <laughs> yeah, and if uh, if he could put Roethlisberger out there on two days rest, he would do it. But um, you're in total free fall. Ian, what, what the heck's going on in Pittsburgh? Uh, you know, I, I think all that uh, who have they played has finally caught up to him because you know what? Yeah. They look like a team that hasn't beaten a good team all season. And uh, I don't know. Cleveland might overtake them in that division. Uh, week 17 keep an eye out for that Ian you got a gift come I on, have, you gotta come to you gotta come to the party with a gift otherwise I got, you're out of here I got a I got a great gift I got a pair of slippers okay oh. Ugg Ug slippers that I'm gonna give to Bill Belichick because for the first time in very long time he will have January to sit back kick his feet up <laughs> relax and make sure he gets a head start because you know what he says all the time when they're in the Super Bowl, when they're in the playoffs, they're already behind everyone else. Now, they're ahead. So, enjoy those slippers, Bill. As a Patriots fan, that's got to be killing you, Ian. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm strangely content with everything. It's actually, oh. you know, it's actually, I'm, I'm proud of myself. 
Okay. Well, I hate to say it because Ira and I are kind of given the same gift. I mean, I'm going to Pittsburgh too, Ira. I'm going to Pittsburgh. I'm going to give the Steelers January tea times at Pebble Beach for the same reasons you are. You're digging them out in Pittsburgh. I'm giving them a flight to uh, San Francisco, go down to Monterey and Carmel. Because the way they're playing now, as you mentioned, they're going to be available. I mean, they can't run. Uh, their defense is worn out. Their linebackers are missing their key linebackers. And, and Ben Roethlisberger, God almighty, he looks as old as Ben Franklin. And, and at least Ben Franklin, you know, at least he discovered electricity. There's nothing going on there right now. Nothing. And, and Ian, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't want to be a Grinch here, but when, when I think of the Steelers right now, I kind of got to invoke the Grinch because there are three words that come to mind in the tradition edition of Christmas. Stink, stank, stump. That's right. That's what they do. They stink <laughs> and they stank and they stump. Okay, let's move on to a next subject. That is the upcoming Hall of Fame vote and the selection of finalists. We voted already. Uh, you and I have, and uh, we submitted our votes, as did the other 46 selectors. That vote will be released in early January, and I assume, so do you, uh, without getting any official confirmation, that we're going to do this by Zoom call this year, rather than being in person in Tampa, because frankly, uh, nobody's going to Tampa except for you two guys. Um, so we'll do it by Zoom, I would guess. You've done that by Zoom. You did it for the senior committee meeting, and I'm on the contributor committee. They did it by Zoom too. How difficult do you think that will be if and when that happens with 48 guys and 18 candidates? Well, Clark, you've been in that room many times and you know that uh, we're lucky to get out of there within eight hours. That's right. Times nine. Um, and Clark, you, you know what you need? You need a good, you need a darn good internet signal. That's what you need. Uh, if your internet goes out, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. All of a sudden you're off that Zoom call. Uh, and Clark, I think it's a mere formality that it's gonna be done by Zoom this yeah. year. Um, I don't know how many out-of-town writers are actually going to be in Tampa during Super Bowl week. I Not, mean, many. It's a, Not many. It's a very unusual week, no question about it. Maybe, Clark, maybe that would help Tampa jump the queue a little bit in terms of the rotation the next time around. It might, it might, thinking that, uh, hey, Tampa didn't get a real Super Bowl. May maybe, maybe. We'll yeah. take every break we can get, Clark. But, you know, personally speaking, Clark, you've seen me do my thing in that room. Um they called me the closer the first three or four years, and uh, and, and now uh, I'm called the clown because uh, John Lynch has been waiting. Uh, but, Clark, you know, unlike a lot of people, I like to stand up. A lot of guys sit down and uh, deliver their uh, their little speech, and I like to stand up. I like to command the room. I, I like to gaze right into those baby blues of Clark Judge. That's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get through to that, man. I figure if I can get Judge – the rest will fall in place like dominoes. So what am I going to do, Clark? I'm going to be sitting uh, in my living room, and uh, I'm not going to be that commanding presence that you've come to love, my friend. I disagree. You're always a commanding presence. We're doing this by radio or audio, whatever you want to call it. And you're a commanding presence, Ira. You always are. You're the sage. You're not the clown. You're the sage, for goodness sakes. So since you mentioned the, the time element, I think that's important. Seven, eight hours, whatever it takes because I'm on a board here in New England uh, that's not related to football and they do Zoom calls and they do some Zoom calls each week of like three to four hours. And the guy who ran it finally said, we can't do this anymore. And we said, well, it works. He goes, no, the attention span of people on the other end 
is not good. They're walking away. They can't stand to sit still for three or four hours. If that's the case, how are you going to get 48 Hall of Fame selectors to sit for seven to eight hours in one spot looking at a screen? I can see three guys falling asleep, Clark. We can name them right now. <laughs> you, me, and who else? <laughs> it's going to be very different, Clark. Very different. And there's a chance they may not wait until the day before the Super Bowl. They may do this earlier. We'll see. No decisions have been made, finalized, but we'll see. So let's just say they did do it earlier. Um, how do you think this is going to play itself out, Ira? I mean, you're involved with the Tampa Bay Super Bowl, and I realize that's completely apart from the Hall of Fame process. But typically, we vote the day before, and that night, the announcement is made of who the five modern era finalists are and the senior and contributor and now coach candidates and, and how that plays itself out. But that's not going to be the case this year, I don't think, because if we do do this earlier, are they going to bring the, the guys in there, fly them in? Are they going to do it by Zoom call? How are we going to do this? I mean, it's a well, really uncharted territory. Clark, they're, they're normally introduced, as you know, at that honors program, yeah, right. which is Saturday night when uh, AP announces their postseason awards of which uh, I believe you and I vote for. So we'll have our vote in in, in a week or two. Yeah. Um, and so that's been canceled, Clark. There, there's no honors show. There's no honors show. And that's a big thing to cancel. You know, the league really prepares for that. And Clark, I'm wondering, you know, David Baker loves to knock on those doors and, and the cameras follow him around and, it, and it's great theater. He loves you know, the attention. Uh, loves the yeah, attention. Remember Hutchinson, Hutchinson emotional. I mean, that's, yep. that's great video. And, Clark, I, I'm, I'm not sure these 15 finalists are, are, are going to be in Tampa in a hotel room. Yeah. So this is really, really strange. You know, they might have to get a phone call from David Baker. Um, and who knows when they're going to be introduced, Clark? Yeah, it's, it's very odd and weird, but very much in keeping with 2020. And this will be the 2021 class, but very much in keeping because – we just don't know what's going on from one day to the next. But I'll tell you what's going on right now. I think we've got John Turney with us, who's uh, one of my favorite guests. And I know Ira, one of yours as well. He's a historian, longtime friend of this show and uh, Hall of Fame voters everywhere. John Turney, a pro football journey, journal. And um, I, I've got him on here. I wanted to ask him in here because last week, <laughs> Randy Moss, who's a Hall of Famer, announced that he was the best receiver of all time, because he changed the game. Jeez, I thought Bob Hayes changed the game back in the 60s. But anyway, he changed the game. Uh, but he's the best receiver of all time. T.O. T.O.'s second. And Jerry Rice is somewhere after that. I don't know, third, fourth, whatever. Just take a number and go to the back of the line. To which Ira, Ian, and Jerry Rice said, what? What? <laughs> John, first of all, your reaction to what Randy Moss said last week. Well, my reaction's the same as it's always been. Uh, Randy's wrong, and he's always been wrong, and he's going to continue to be wrong. <laughs> okay, John, let me ask you this. Just give me your top three guys of all time, top three guys. Well, as a, as a historian, you can't, you can't go by a player personnel evaluation. That, that's just not how we look at things. When you're talking about the greatest wide receiver, you have to look at their accomplishments in comparison to their peers. And Jerry Rice is first because he was so dominant in his era. I have Bob 
uh, Don Hudson second right. and um, Lance Allworth third. I wrote that a year ago when we did our series, and, and I stick by that. Those are the three that were the most dominant compared to their peers, in my view. Yeah, I agree with you. You know that you know that this this guy's growing on me, Clark. This guy turning. This guy turning. Oh, I'm glad you said turning. I thought you were talking about Moss. <laughs> this guy, this guy turning's growing on me, John. That is outstanding. Um, boy, I'm telling you, Rice, Hudson, and Allworth. That is brilliant. Um, you talk to people today, John. You mentioned Lance Allworth. They don't know what you're talking about. They have no idea. Uh, San Diego Chargers. Those. Beautiful blue uh, jerseys with John Hadle in the AFL. And, you know, Lance Allworth was so great that Al Davis couldn't believe that he didn't end up being a Raider. It was probably one of the great regrets of Al Davis's life. And Al Davis is a guy, Clark, he just respects talent. Right. He respected talent. And when he saw Lance Allworth, he knew he was watching something very special. I just want to say one thing about um, Rice, uh, John, and you know this. The 22 touchdowns in 1987, John, that was 12 games, 12. Moss had four more games. That's correct. Well, two things uh, about, let's start with the Moss, and uh, he mentioned T.O. as being second. Uh, If you add Terrell Owens and Randy Moss's Pro Bowls together, they both went to six. It doesn't add up to Jerry Rice's thirteen. If you add their all pros together, Owens five, Moss four, doesn't add up to Jerry Rice's 12. So they just together don't match what Jerry Rice did. As far as Allworth, if you watch the film that show up, shows up in film, and he wasn't some thin, you know, uh, he wasn't some thin white guy that, you know, maybe you see when you watch Raymond Berry. If you look at the pictures of him and you watch him on film, he was very well built. He had uh, big thighs and big uh, big calves. He was a hurdler. This was a guy, if he played today, he would be great. He was great after the catch. He would uh, be a guy that could do stuff like uh, maybe Robert Woods. You see with the Rams doing the, the end arounds and the, the ghost motions. But he would also be somebody who was faster than that, like a, maybe a Cooper Cup in run after the catch. But he could also leap. He was somebody who could get up and catch balls like a, like a Mike Evans. So he would be kind of a cross between all those kinds of guys. I think he would be somebody who would catch 80, 90 balls for 13, 1,400 yards and a dozen touchdowns. He would be that kind of guy. They're going to be a composite of some players, John. I think that's a pretty good group to be a composite of. It's funny, you, you mentioned, if you look at the film, I did look at the film. I, I, I had somebody at the league office call me in one time and say, I want to show you some things. And so he showed me Unitas' first game. He showed me some films of the old Browns. And then he went to the 63 San Diego Chargers. We watched every game, but it wasn't every game. It was the highlights of every game. And he said, look at Lance Allworth. He makes every play. Every look at the plays down the field. He's got the speed to beat the secondary. He's physical. He can jump. He can make every play. This is one of the greatest receivers of all time. And I know you and I are friends with Rick Gosling. So is Ira Kaufman. And, and he's the historian too, as well as a pro football hall of fame selector. He said, you can make an argument for Lance Allworth as the greatest receiver of all time, but because there's no video of him today in this ESPN generation or very little of it, 
we don't talk about Lance Allworth because he played so long ago, but he was a dominant player. And I'll tell you what, John, I think those 63 Chargers, I think they could have beaten the Bears that year. You know, I, I think they could have as well. It, it, you know, we don't know. We'll never know. But sure, they were somebody that could have challenged that defense. You know, it's, uh, it would have been fun to watch. You had Sid Gilman's offense versus George Allen's defense. He was defensive coordinator, or they called it just defensive coach, but that was his defense. Would have been tremendous. You know, John, another um, another aspect of this, guys, is um, longevity. I mean, when guys are fairly close, um, you know, and you can make a case, you know, average yards per game might be close here and there, but the historic longevity has to come into play a little bit with Rice. Um John, over 300 games, 300 games for a wide receiver. He was 40 years old. He still had a 1,000-yard season. He wasn't playing out the string. Um, the 20 years uh, just adds one more layer to the, to the Rice legacy. Well, I would agree with that. When you go by their first 12 years, and that, leaves that, that actually does Moss a favor because it leaves out that 13th year where he uh, quit on the Titans – You go by their first 12 years, the 13th year is when, remember, Rice blew out the knee. Uh, Rice still has over 100 more catches. He has more touchdowns. Uh, He has more of everything those first 12 years. Then he comes back, and then those next, as you talk about, we can leave out that season with Seattle, and then that's kind of his gimme. Those last years, after he comes back with the knee injury, he averaged – 77 catches for uh, almost 1,100 yards between ages 36 and 40. So and John, John how come, did, how come if, if Jerry Rice or if, if Randy Moss is the greatest of all time, how come he couldn't get a job between 36, 37, and 38 when Jerry Rice is catching 77 balls for over 1,000 yards? That's a good question. And, John, is, is, since we live in a numbers generation, you mentioned a ton of numbers. There's something that, that strikes me about the difference between these two guys, and it has nothing to do with numbers. Jerry Rice was a great blocker. He really was. He was a terrific blocker in that 49ers offense, but we focus so much on his individual achievements because they're enormous. But the other thing is he played hard from beginning to end. And I'll tell you what, I was at the NFC Championship game in 2000, the Giants and the Vikings. Randy Moss took the entire second half off. He was ticked off because apparently – some people who are friends of his or family or whatever couldn't get it on the sideline, and they were getting scorched by the Giants, the Vikings. He just took the, the half off. Jerry Rice would never do that, ever. Well, I think he, you know, and I, I wasn't there, but the people who covered the Raiders that second year said he took the second half of that season off. He quit on a, he quit on a, a game. He quit on a team. He quit on a second team with the Titans. And here's something interesting. This was in relation to Marvin Harrison, who a lot of people don't think was as good as, didn't have the talent as, wasn't wasn't the kind of dominant receiver because he didn't have the physical gifts. When somebody asked Charles Woodson, who was the best uh, receiver he ever faced, he said Marvin had everything. He was fast, quick, and uh, did everything. When somebody asked Charles Tillman, who was the toughest receiver he ever faced, he said Marvin Harrison. When Champ Bailey was asked the same question. He said, the guy that gave me the most problems was Marvin Harrison. All these guys faced Randy Moss and T.O. in the prime. How come they didn't name T.O. or or Randy Moss? I think what Randy Moss is trying to get at is he was the most 
talented receiver of all time. And I think that's probably true. He was faster than Rice. He was taller. He leaped better, had good hands. But did he get the most out of his talent? We know Rice did. Did Moss? I think the fairest answer is no. You know, Clark, um, I want to go back to 87 for, uh, for just one more point on, uh, on the greatness of Rice. Uh, you know, that's the season that they had the replacement players. So the regulars played 12 games, Clark, and, and Rice caught 22 touchdowns. And to me, even more significantly, the next receiver in the league with the most touchdowns was Mike Quick with 11. Jerry Rice had double the number of touchdown catches than any of his peers in an NFL season. That is remarkable. It is remarkable. And going to John's point, Ira, John, I'll direct this to you, but I was going to ask you the same thing about Marvin Harrison. If Terrell Owens is the second greatest receiver of all time, how come he wasn't one of the top two receivers of his generation? On the all-decade team of the 2000s, Marvin Harrison and Randy Moss, the first team. Terrell Owens was second team. So um, I, 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 this thing, I think it's just an attention-grabbing device. And guess what? Got our attention. We're talking about it. <laughs> well, I, I think it's one of those things where he might feel guilty. It's one of those things where um, uh, I don't. Re- you guys will probably remember who made the quote. It might be Rudy. Rudy. It might be Kipling. I can never say his first name. You know, of all the words, the uh, tongue and pen. The saddest are these, it might have been. You know, all of us have regrets when we get older. If I could have done this, maybe that's what's kind of settling in. Uh, his legacy is I could have been the best. I could have, if I worked harder, he would have put up numbers that uh, might have been untouchable, like Jerry Rice's are seemingly untouchable. And one final point I would like to make is we all know that the game changed over time. In 1978, the rules changed to open up the passing game. There was a second set of uh, things that happened in the 90s. And, and in 93, 94, they stopped calling push-offs and things like that. And Jerry Rice, is, he benefited from that. His numbers ticked up as well. But there were players like uh, Herman Moore that were catching 122 balls. And we know all what happened in the 90s. Randy Moss played his entire career under those rules. And we know they've even ticked up since then. And we see the numbers for everybody going up. Randy Moss played half his career between, you know, with the 1978 to 92-93 rules. So even with that little bit of a handicap, Rice still had better numbers in his first dozen years and in his you know, final years as well because Randy didn't play those final years. As we said, he, he couldn't get a job when he was 36. So that's even another feather in uh, Jerry Rice's cap. So I don't think there's any question who the GOAT is. And uh, it's not Moss. No, um, he, he, he gathered Moss because he didn't work as hard, and so his stone didn't roll. <laughs> John, uh, John could, you make a, could you make a credible case for Don Hudson at number one? I think so in terms of peers. I mean, he blew away his peers much like you made the case that uh, Jerry Rice did in uh, 1987. He more than doubled in yards, touchdowns. There is something that's called black ink and gray ink. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. You probably are. It started with baseball. When you look at somebody's career statistics, black ink means they led the league. 
and gray ink means they were in the top top ten. As much as black ink as Jerry Rice had, Don Hudson had more. So he he had triple crowns, led the league in receptions, yardage, and touchdowns. Uh, I don't believe Jerry Rice. He might have had one triple crown, and there's only been one quadruple crown winner, and that was Elroy Hirsch in 1951. So you could make a case that Hudson was further ahead of his peers than even Jerry Rice was. But then again, when you're beating out much better players, I think that still bodes well for Jerry Rice, in my opinion. And remember, Jerry Rice scored 10 touchdowns on the ground. Here's a guy who could take the flanker reverse or flanker around and take it all away. So there's another thing that Jerry Rice did, one of those little things in addition to blocking, that says this guy's number one. And Ira, that's why we love John. You got questions about baseball, football, or Rudyard Kipling, you call John Turney. John, thanks so much for the insight, and Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Thank you so much thanks, for joining John. us. Thank you. We're going to stop right there, and we're going to go to break. When we return, the passing of Hall of Fame great Kevin Green. You're listening to the I Test for Two podcast. Second and four. Well, we were all stunned and saddened earlier this week to learn of the passing of Hall of Fame linebacker Kevin Green at the age of 58. And I had the privilege of knowing Kevin when he played with the 49ers in 1997. And then later, when he was a candidate for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, he was inducted in 2016. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed being around him. He was a great guy to be around. But I didn't know him as well as our next guest, and that would be former linebacker Gary Plummer, who was Kevin's teammate in San Francisco in 97 and who, because he played the same position, meaning linebacker, knew him as well as anyone there. And Gary, first of all, thanks so much for joining us. And secondly, let me ask you, what was the first thing that flashed through your head when you heard of Kevin's passing? Uh, a punch in the gut. Uh, it just, you know, the first thing that happens is your heart goes out to uh, his wife, Tara, his two kids. Um, and you just literally the first thing was the statistic just ringing, reverberating in my ears, 59 and a half years for life expectancy. And Kevin was 58. And it just uh, it, it just saddens you. Gary, how would you describe him to people who didn't know him? I mean, a lot of people didn't know him, but they're talking about as a great guy, great person, great player, but a better guy. How would you describe him? Oh, my gosh, Clark. So <laughs> we all know he did the the WWE or WWF <laughs> yeah, stuff. Right. I'm telling you, that was not an act for Kevin. That is exactly who he was in the meetings, out at practice, during the games. Uh, this is the honest to God truth. The first linebacker meeting we were ever in, he was sitting in the back row and I'm always in the very front row. And, and I kept hearing this like, <clears throat> And I, like, I didn't want to turn around because I'm paying attention to the coach. And all of a sudden I turn around, it's Kevin. He's getting jacked up in a meeting. 
Like he's ready to get somebody. It was the install. It was the installation meeting. And they're talking about, you know, what they like to run. You know, Kevin, they're going to run jab OT at you. That means they're going to kick you out with the backside guard. And Kevin, that ain't going to happen. It was, it was unbelievable. And I, it, it's like taking the, the, the worst football movie you've ever seen made and say, that can't be real. And it happened. So that, that was sounds- just that was just Kevin in the meetings. You can only imagine the intensity in practice. Uh, we both had the pleasure of knowing the late great junior sale, and yeah. he was unbelievably intense in practice, but he was also he was more of a jabber. You know, he 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 loved to use his mouth to get into the minds of opponents where Kevin just wanted to kill everybody. I mean, in practice, he's tearing people up. So his intensity was unparalleled Uh, again. Didn't matter if it was game day, didn't matter if it was at practice or in the meeting rooms, that dude was intense. And yet, as you said, off the field, one of the nicest guys, great manners. I mean, went to Auburn, he's got that, you know, Southern gentleman charm about him. Gary, thanks for doing this. Uh, Gary, it, it took, and I know it sounds crazy, but it, it, it took Kevin five times as a finalist to finally get that gold jacket. So, Gary, as a former teammate and, and a guy who really appreciated Kevin Green's uh, career and uh, dedication to the sport, um, what would go through your mind, Gary, those first four times when he got turned away and didn't get enough votes? Were you... Were you kind of cursing uh, the uh, voters like me and Clark, Gary? <laughs> oh, I mean, that wouldn't trust me. I, that's not the first time. He cursed me all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was, you know, it's interesting because um, you just, you never really understand, you know, why things happen the way they do. Uh, but Kevin, because it did take him five times, couldn't have been more appreciative and gracious uh, obviously, Eddie DeBarlo went in at the same time and we were there. Uh, Kevin came to all the events that Eddie had, and those events were over the top there in Canton. And Kevin, oh my gosh, he went, he, there must have been 600 people at, at Eddie's party. And yet he took the time to take pictures and, and just be gracious to everyone there. He was, I, I am so grateful that he had the opportunity to, uh, you know, to enjoy being in the Hall of Fame for a few years before passing. And, and Gary, from a football perspective, you know, you've seen guys like Chris Dolman, LT coming off the edge. Gary, what was special about Green? How did he do it? Did he overpower people? Did he outsmart them? How, how did he get to the quarterback? Relentless. That's it. I, the dude was, again, one of the most intense guys I ever played with, but he was relentless. He would not be denied. And he was a what you have to do when you play this crazy game is it, it is really difficult to to have that kind of intensity. So you manufacture it. And he started I would try to manufacture it on game day. Dude started manufacturing it early in the week on the installation on Wednesday. I mean, I think that was his key. Is he was just going 
to be more relentless than the guy across from him. Gary, and we're speaking with Gary Plummer on the I Test for Two podcast, but Gary, as you know, played the elephant position with the 49ers, which essentially is a designated pass rusher. And a lot of people thought of him as a designated pass rushing linebacker. And I know from talking to Kevin, that drove him crazy because he said, <laughs> I was more than that. He was adamant. I was more than that. I played the run. I played the run well. Look at the film. And he did play the run well. Can you speak to that? <laughs> I can absolutely speak to it because I wasn't a pass coverage guy. I was only a run stopper, you know, and it just fires you up. And, and, and you know, Kevin, again, took that and, and, you know, it was that slap in the face that increased his intensity. It's like, I'm going to prove people wrong. Um, he was damn good. He knew in order to be a pass rusher, you have to be extremely good using leverage. And it's the same thing, you know, being a good run stopper, you have to be good at using your leverage. And, and Kevin was all of that. Um, I, beef, I don't know how long we're going, but I have to tell you, I just remembered a story about, <laughs> about intensity at practice. So we had our linebacker coach his, his final year uh, in San Francisco um, was John Marshall. He was also our defensive coordinator. And John was a funny dude. And uh, Bryant Young, the great BY, who I think is up for the hall this year, and I'm putting my... Uh, my vote in for him right now, Ira, this dude, best defensive lineman I ever played with. Um, he, so so B, BY used to do this thing where he'd kind of punch, you know, you in the back, you know, kind of a kidney punch, but it was just a joke, except the dude was 297 pounds of muscle. And so it didn't hurt a little bit. So it was this big running joke throughout the years. It kind of, you know, guys would do it to each other. Uh, we told Kevin that, hey, we punch John Marshall, our linebacker coach, in the back, in the kidney, like a kidney punch, because, you know, it's just this big joke. But he's going to call you a big, I'm going to paraphrase, wimp, uh, because <laughs> is that all you've got? And uh, I said, so, Kevin, you know, it's up to you, bro, but I'm telling you, he's going to call you a pussy as soon as you hit him in the back. And... And Kevin goes, no, ain't nobody called me a pussy. And so, <laughs> so we, Kevin, Kenny Norton and myself are sitting there and we're waiting for John to turn his back to us. And we look at Kevin and we're like, Kevin, I'm telling you, he is just gonna, he's gonna laugh in your face. Ain't nobody gonna laugh in my face. And he literally <laughs> takes a step he hits John in the kidneys, lifts him off the ground. John Marshall goes down on his knees on all four on the ground. He gets himself back up. He turns back. He looks at Kevin and says, is that all you got? <laughs> and Kevin was pissed. I'm not kidding you. Uh, John Marshall the next day told me he said I am shocked that I'm not peeing blood right now because that dude he jacked me up so that in a nutshell that's Kevin he just he was the ultimate intense warrior I guess coaching you and Kevin Green is why John Marshall had white hair Gary <laughs> at the age of 24 yeah that's right hey Gary one more for me and thanks for doing this Gary um you talk about that adrenaline, adrenaline rush that uh, defined Kevin Green. 
Gary, uh, can you remember uh, anything at halftime when you guys were losing or after a game that the Niners lost where Green would lose it in the locker room or, or did he keep it within himself? Uh, you know, he was he, he uh, wasn't a guy that got up and screamed in front of the 49er crew. I know he was a big leader with the Rams and with the Steelers. But, you know, he was coming in. I think there were 10 out of the 11 starters on that team on defense were pro bowlers. And so, you know, he it, that's I think to Kevin's credit, he was able to read the room and knew that guys didn't need that when you know, you, you've had so much success already. Um, but I'm sure, and I did hear stories about him when he was coaching uh, with Green Bay. And of course, it was fantastic that he got his Super Bowl ring with Green Bay because he didn't get it with the Niners, didn't get it with the Rams, didn't get it with Pittsburgh. And um, so that was it's a real blessing for him. Uh, but yeah, I did hear stories about his, in his intensity um, and, you know, a little bit of frustration with players because I think Kevin was back to what we were talking about, such a natural pass rusher that, you know, sometimes it's hard when it comes so naturally to teach that to others. Gary, a couple last ones for me. The first is we all know that he had 160 career sacks. It's more than anybody outside of Bruce Smith and Reggie White. He's also a five-time Pro Bowler, all-decade player. But what, in your mind, is the legacy of Kevin Green? I think it's probably to go back to when he was a walk-on at Auburn. You just It's hard to wrap your brain around the fact that a guy wasn't good enough coming out of high school, and then he ends up in the, the ultimate uh, in the NFL, in the Hall of Fame. And so I think it was just that, uh, that determination, the work ethic, um, you know, we didn't really talk a lot about that, but in the weight room, on the practice field, nobody worked harder. It wasn't just on game day. So uh, I think it would be a great example for younger players on how to get it done and how to do it right. And the last one, getting away from a Kevin Green conversation now and moving on to a subject that you mentioned earlier, that's Bryant Young. He could be a finalist this year. He was a finalist last year. You were standing in front of the Hall of Fame voters today. You wanted to tell him, put this guy in Canton? What would you tell him? So I think character has a lot to do with uh, somebody getting into Canton. And he has won the Lynn Eshmont Award more times than, I, I think the most other than him is twice. That's and right. He won it. 11 times, uh, maybe 12. I don't remember exactly. Uh, it was just a foregone conclusion that he was going to be the guy, the most inspirational 49er each year. Um, I, I think he, so two stories about Brant Young. Um, his, he was 297 pounds and he probably, he had less than 10% body fat. And he, his arms, we used to call them coal buckets. He was just the most unbelievable specimen, and yet he was a gentle giant off the field. On the field, some of the things that I saw him do, he literally ragdolled 320-pound offensive linemen. And you obviously, you didn't see it during the game, but you're watching game film, game tapes, after 
uh, on Mondays, Kenny Norton and I would go in Sunday night and watch the game. And you like, you look at each other and you're like, are you kidding me? That just happened. We saw it on tape and I still don't believe it. How do you ragdoll a 330 pound man? So that is, I, I mean, again, he was amazing against the run. He was a guy that literally made Dana Stubblefield the NFL defensive player of the year in 94 because Bryant Young got double teamed on every single play and still was an amazing player. And Stubby had a ton of sacks. Hey, uh, Gary Plummer, I know you've got a mailbox to replace, so we're going to let you go. <laughs> but thanks so much for joining us on this sad occasion. Really appreciate uh, it. Thanks for as having always, me. Always Gary. great to talk to you guys. Yeah, thanks, as, Gary. always enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. That was former linebacker Gary Plummer. And Ira, I mean, those are poignant stories about Kevin Green. Those are great stories. You know, uh, Clark, I, I didn't know Kevin Green like you did, but I saw him in Canton. And you can see the intensity of Kevin Green when he put that gold jacket on. It came right through the screen. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. There's the signal, Ira. There's the signal. Somebody's ready for our weekly I Was There presentation. And you know what? I'm looking at this note here, and it says, you've got it this week. So where are we going, Ira? We are going to the Meadowlands, one of your favorite places, I love Clark. It. Uh, December 29th. Uh, you know, 2007, four days after Christmas. And Clark, I, I will surmise that very rarely did a regular season game uh, have such an impact on shaping the postseason as when the New England Patriots sauntered into Giants Stadium, the unbeaten Patriots searching for that second unbeaten season in NFL history. Clark, the Giants were 10 and 5. They were locked into the playoffs. They weren't going anywhere. Yep. And all week long, the New York tabloids said to Tom Coughlin, what are you going to do? Are you going to rest, guys? You're going to sit down, Eli Manning? And here's the quote from Mr. Tom Coughlin. We're going to play our starters. We're not changing who we are. And whether part of that was that New England was going for an unbeaten season, we'll never know. But the fact is, the Giants went all out to win that game. And here's what happened. 28-16, Giants, middle of the game. Manning's going crazy. He's ripping the Patriots to shreds. I'm sorry, Ian Glendon. New England had no answers for young Eli. And then what happens? The greatest offense in NFL history to that date, scores three straight touchdowns, New England. One of them on a long pass to a guy that's wearing a gold jacket. Leaves the Patriots with third and 10. Brady with time, going back again to Moss. Touchdown, Patriots. Well, there's two great football players showing why they're great. Going right back to what just failed, and Brady and Moss hook up on a record catch. And Clark, uh, the Giants close and lose 38-35, but in defeat, Ian, the Giants prove to themselves, we can play with these guys. We can hang with these guys. Clark, they were 13-and-a-half-point underdogs 
in that game at home, you know, and that was a playoff team, the Giants. What happens? Sorry, Ian. Five weeks later, the after after three road playoff wins, Clark, the Giants with a colossal upset of the Patriots. And Clark, I think you'd agree with me. Had New England won that Super Bowl game, they would be listed as the greatest NFL team of all time. Yeah, probably. And they wouldn't be breaking out the champagne anymore in Miami. But I was at that game too, Ira. I was at that game. And Ian, sorry to bring back these memories. I think he's tearing up, Ira, the Patriots fan. But um, he remembers those good old days because they're gone. They're long gone. But uh, I remember that game too. And I was asked before the game, should they play the starters? And I said, no, absolutely not. What have you got to prove? Nothing. You've got nothing to prove here. They could get hurt. But going to your point, when they won the Super Bowl, do you know what they said afterwards? And I know you did because I saw you there. We were there. They said, we knew after playing them in that 17th week that we could beat these guys. We knew it. And they were the only team that year that did. Um, that was a great game. That really was a great game. Uh, and it was Absolutely. great TV, too, because there was millions of people that were watching it. But uh, I remember that well, Eric. And uh, I've got a couple of final – got a final thought, Clark. You do. I was gonna, you jumped me. I was going to ask you. Final thought, go ahead. Let's hear it. All right. And it's right up your route. Clark, on the Hall of Fame, and speaking of Eli Manning, Clark, in recent years, and I mean the last decade, we have not put too many quarterbacks into the Hall of Fame. There's been Kurt Warner, and there's been Brett Favre. This is a decade. And what I'm saying is coming up, coming up, just wait. Of course, you got Peyton Manning right in front of us. Tom Brady, of course. You've got Eli being in the room. You've got Roethlisberger. You've got Rivers, and you might have Matt Ryan at least in the room. And, Clark, we haven't had a lot of quarterbacks in the room recently. Yeah, and if you look at the current crop of quarterbacks out there now, I think the position's in better shape than it's been in decades, maybe. I mean, there's so Absolutely. many good young quarterbacks. I mean, my final thought, I just want to say what we said throughout this program to Kevin Green, rest in peace. Uh, great guy. As David Baker said, great player, but uh, greater man. And, and I'm going to miss him. Really going to miss him. That's going to do it. Ira, tell people where they can find you on Twitter. At iKaufman76, my friend. Okay, Ian, please tell them where they can find you on Twitter. At you got to turn that <laughs> mic on, Ian. You, know, you would know <laughs> that if you're a Hall of Fame producer. Technical difficulties here, folks. It's at I-G-L-E-N 31 for more technical difficulties. Follow me on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at at Clark Judge T-O-F. We don't hear from you there. You're going to hear from us here on the iTest for Two. Thanks for listening, and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays.